Happy New Year, everybody. Good to see you all this morning. Hope you uh, recovered from the holidays and got a couple of questions I want to ask you. How many of you actually made a resolution for this coming year? A few of you, maybe two. Okay. Um, here's a question that you probably weren't expecting. How many of you have ever watched Family Feud? Okay. How many of you have ever been in one? Sometimes, sometimes churches become a family feud, and that's tragic. And uh, I'm grateful we don't have any of those going on, but I decided to create one. We want to stage a family feud this morning briefly, and I just want to ask for a volunteer from this side of the family and this side of the family as well. So if I could just get a volunteer to come up here. Donna, Kalani, what do you think? Who? How about Angie? What do you think? Greg? Dave? Dave? You? Okay. Uh, Greg, come on up. Greg, okay, how about this side? <laughs> She's nominating Cal. <laughs> Who'd like to come up here? Okay, all right, Frank. Frank and Greg. Come on over here, you guys. <clears throat> All right, guys. This is serious business here. Okay. <laughs> we don't have a buzzer, but you've got to raise your hand, and I'm going to give you a question in just a moment that will appear on the screen. And this has to do with New Year's resolutions, and you have to give us the number one answer if you are first to raise your hand. So the question is, there it is. What is the number one area in which people make New Year's resolutions? Okay, Greg. Fitness. Fitness, okay. And the number one answer survey says? <laughs> Exercise. That counts, right? Okay. So, what would you have said, Frank? Same thing. Same thing, okay. <laughs> Okay, what's another one, do you think? Uh, probably family, get closer to family. Actually, that didn't make the top ten. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Any others that you can think of, Greg? Financial management. That might have been in there. We'll, we'll take a look <laughs> at them. In both the Friday night service and the 8 o'clock service, people said, go to church. Uh -huh. I said, that didn't make the top ten either, you know. So. <laughs> But anyway, okay, thanks for participating, you guys. Appreciate it very much. I'll show you what they were. Number two, lose weight. Number three, eat more healthily. And then you can see the others in the next slide. Um, I thought it was curious that we didn't get to others until we got to number seven, and that's still kind of about me personally and uh, I think going to church is part of that one percent you know maybe well those things can be really important and good actually but the Apostle Paul said something to young Timothy in his letter to him he said this on the other hand discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness for bodily discipline is only of little profit but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And a lot of times, 
we will focus on the first part of that verse where it says, bodily discipline is only of little profit. Okay, so what really matters is the spiritual person. But there's a person named Gary Thomas who wrote a book entitled Every Body Matters. He's a Christian writer. And he said, no, physical health is important. It's important to have a healthy lifestyle for a number of reasons as believers. First of all, the Bible tells us that this body of ours is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God resides within us. And that right there is a good reason to maintain good health. But he says, beyond that, we want to serve the Lord. And we can serve the Lord more effectively and more extensively in terms of time if our body's healthy. And so a lot of people, they make resolutions and work on fitness and diet for different reasons. And sometimes it's kind of the wrong reason in a way. It's to look good, to be attractive. And that's external. But his, his maintenance is that what we need to do is do so for the Lord. He said, you have a heart of gold, you want a soul of silver, and uh, our soul is what counts, so that we can actively and extensively serve the Lord. Keala O Yesu, the path of Jesus. It's our pathway of discipleship here at Kaimuki Christian, and, and uh, we want everyone to love God and to just connect in worship with the Lord. We want everyone to uh, just uh, connect with one another in our Ohana groups. And we've spent some time the last year on those. This year we want to move into Serve the Lord, and I want to spend several weeks in this and uh, talk about uh, connecting with others in ministry as we serve the Lord. So we'll do that. Uh, for a period of time, and then we'll move into Reach the Lost. We'll focus on that about April and then on into the summer. But that's why we want to maintain good health. It is a good thing, so we can serve the Lord. And uh, the, the title of this series is Improving Your Serve. Some of us need probably to look at our diet. In fact, Friday afternoon, I was just finishing up my message, and a gal walks in and she says, Here's a plate of brownies from the Ala Moana Hotel. I couldn't believe it. And she gave me that whole plate of brownies. Oh, man. Of course, I threw them in the wastebasket. <laughs> Not really. I would never do that. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Well, some of us need to work on our diet or exercise, uh, but probably all of us maybe could improve our serve the way we serve the Lord. And so I want to begin today and suggest that if we're going to do that, we need to start with an understanding of what greatness is. Because in Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus talks about being a servant, that's what he focused on. A different understanding of the concept of what it means to be great. And so I've got uh, a concept here that Jesus redefines greatness for citizens of his kingdom. There's an outline in your bulletin. I want to share with you two principles and then some points under each. And here's the first principle. Greatness in Christ's kingdom is achieved not by grasping for a crown, 
but by picking up our cross. Let me tell you what's just happened. Jesus and his disciples were headed up to Jerusalem. He told them again that he's going to be betrayed and that he's going to be crucified. And it's in the midst of this context that the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, that's James and John, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. See, they believed in Jesus, but they believed that he was going to set up an earthly kingdom and that it was imminent, that they were coming up to Jerusalem, he'd be crowned, there'd be positions of authority and power around him, and she wanted her boys to be right next to Jesus. Understandable. Mark's gospel has this same account, but it omits her request and has those sons making the request. And they, they basically said this, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we think that's a little crass. We may have never prayed like that, but have we ever thought like that? That we want Jesus to answer our prayers just like we tell him we want it answered. That is so normal, human. But Jesus' answer was probably very revealing to them and to us. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. And that's the truth. If we got every prayer answered that we asked, it wouldn't work out like we'd hoped. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, well, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left is not for mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared for by my Father. We're often confident that we can do whatever's needed if he'll just answer our prayers and he sees the big picture and we don't. And uh, they said, yeah, we can drink that cup, not even understanding what that would mean. In the Bible, a cup often symbolized suffering or affliction. And Jesus knew the cup that lay before him, they didn't understand that. In fact, they would at some point, but we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying in agony the night that he was betrayed in, in Matthew's Gospel. He prays, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. That cup, of course, the suffering, the agony of the cross. He's saying, if there's any other way, Father... And yet, he followed that, not my will, but thine be done. Sometimes we forget that part. We just are asking our request to the Lord, and we need to remember it's, it's a matter of faith, of great faith, to say, yet, not my will, Father, because I want your will. You see the big picture. And this was the cup that Jesus had in mind here. I want to mention in response is three points. First of all, servants will encounter hardship. The disciples didn't understand the cup, but they soon would. I mean, all of the disciples, except for Judas, who betrayed Jesus, suffered as martyrs, except for John. And he was tortured, persecuted. They tried to boil him in oil. 
he was ultimately exiled to the Isle of Patmos, from which he wrote the book of Revelation. They drank the cup. They were able with his strength, with his power, not on their own, but they learned that to be a servant means hardship and sometimes loss of life. And so it is with us. We thought sometimes, wow, I've given my life to Christ. Now things are going to get easy. Sometimes they get more difficult. And to be a servant uh, means that we sacrifice. And our brothers and sisters in various parts of the world know what it means to go without and to lose their lives and to lose loved ones because they choose to be a servant of Jesus. And so that's what Jesus wanted his followers to understand. You may be in a period in your life right now where you're struggling, suffering as a servant of Christ. You have thoughts, is this really worth it? Well, it is. Jesus promised that. And the Apostle Paul encourages us with words like these to the letter to the Corinthian believers. He said, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We desire the crown, but he points us to our cross. And what's our cross? Our cross is to identify with Christ and to follow him in our current context. He knows exactly where each of us is, geographically, socially, relationally. And he says, it's in that context that I want you to be a servant. Not when you get over here, not when this happens. No, right here. That's where you're placed to serve. And I'll be with you in that situation. Some of you would recognize the name of Dawson Trotman. Dawson Trotman was a sailor in the Navy during World War II. But he was a committed Christian. And uh, he took a fellow sailor and led him to Christ. And then he taught him to read God's Word every morning and pray and memorize Scripture and then challenged him. Now you take another guy and I'll take another guy. And they did that. And it just began to multiply through those years of the war. And after World War II, then he formed an organization ultimately called the Navigators, and it was all about discipleship, discipling others. And uh, in fact, it was so effective that when the Billy Graham organization saw after their crusades that the converts kind of dissipated, they called in the Navigators and said, would you follow up these people and ground them in the Word and help them to become disciples, and they partnered together. Well, many years ago, there was somebody in the mountains of Taiwan that uh, ran into a, ma a missionary from the Navigators and was talking to him. And this guy said, Dawson Trotman, I knew him. He was the most outstanding Christian I've ever met. And the guy asked this missionary, so what did Trotman say that really captured your heart? He said, I actually don't remember anything he said, but I remember he shined my shoes. Wow, that's powerful. I mean, a servant sees the need and meets it. And sometimes it's humbling, often is. Sometimes it's challenging, sometimes it's difficult. But that's what a disciple does. Second point is a servant's motives matter. Motives are important. I mean, James and John, what did they want? Personal glory. They were ambitious. They wanted the power that they saw would uh, 
be around Jesus. That's what they were grabbing for. And I think that a lot of times we have to get, well, contemplative about our own motives. I reflected myself this week over decades, and boy, I was convicted as I thought that there have been many times when my motives have just not been pure. I'd hoped they were, but in all, on all honesty, they always haven't, haven't always been what I'd want them to be. Let me give you a little bit of insight into my journey. I grew up on a farm in Nebraska, and that's where hard work was valued, and especially by my parents' generation. So I started working as a kid. I mean, we'd uh, go out in the fields, and I wasn't driving the tractor. Oh, no, my dad or my uncles drove the tractors. I'd be having a machete in my hand, and we'd be cutting volunteer corn out of Milo, just you know, long days like that, or, or going through those cornfields, and I couldn't even see the top, and, and we're cutting, you know, uh, noxious weeds out of those rows. And I couldn't wait to get to the end to see the, the water jug, you know, on the end. Um, I mean, we had livestock, cattle, sheep, pigs, a lot of work associated with that. When I was a freshman in high school, started working in a garage and uh, did that through high school. Went into construction and worked there a few years, went into sales. But one thing that was always true is people would say, back when I was a kid, Ronnie's a hard worker. They called me Ronnie back then. And uh, I liked that. That was appealing to me. And uh, so um, that became just part of who I was. And I went into the ministry. And that didn't just change immediately. Uh, I still liked to be known that I would work hard and long. And, and that was just a part of, of me. But that wasn't for the glory of God. That was for me, and uh, that's not a pure motive. And so we wrestle with those things, I think. At least I do, and I confess that. The Apostle Paul, I think, even had some kind of strokes, some struggles like that. He was talking to the Corinthian church, and he said, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. It's true. He cares about our motives. He wants us to serve for his honor and glory. But he knows we're human. Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City at our Redeemer Church for many years, and he said something that I would never say to you guys, so I'll read what he said. He said, Pastors often hear, I work my fingers to the bone in this church, and what thanks do I get? Is that the way it is? Your service was for thanks? Are you in your right mind? Servanthood begins where gratitude and applause ends. Servanthood begins where gratitude and applause ends. Are you in a ministry and you haven't been thanked? Okay, now you can begin to serve because you're serving the Lord. Real service is when we're serving when nobody knows, when it isn't about being thanked or praised. Servants don't grasp for the crown, they pick up the cross. And then servants put others first. I mean, look what happened when the other disciples got wind of what James and John had done. It says in verse 24, And hearing this, that they'd approached Jesus like that, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. They were mad. They were upset that they would use, and, and their mother probably was the auntie of Jesus, that they would use a relative to get top positions in his kingdom. 
And they weren't about to let that slide without a fight. And here's the thing. They weren't upset because James and John didn't understand the true meaning of servanthood. They were upset because James and John beat them to it. And they would have vied for that. And isn't it interesting, by the way, that we can become indignant when we see something in somebody else's life that we indulge in our own life. And I think that was true of those disciples. And uh, we're quick to excuse ourselves and see that same thing and get upset when we see it in someone else. But I want you to notice, when someone grabs for power, the result is disunity and division. That happens in our families, that happens in a church, that happens in a business setting. It just causes division. And these guys now were divided because of that. But Jesus dealt with it. That brings us to the second principle. Greatness in Christ's kingdom is achieved not by aspiring to be the king, but by embracing the role of a servant. Here's how Jesus responded. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. It's very instructive that Jesus didn't call James and John to the side and scold them because he realized it wasn't just their problem. He brought them all together and used this as a teachable moment and said, you know those Gentiles, and that was really another word for pagans, those people that don't know God, their whole system is built on hierarchy, and if you can make it to the top, then you have the power and you can control other people, but it's not so among you. It actually was that way, but Jesus is saying it shouldn't be that way among you. I mean, these disciples understood it, the culture of power and authority. I mean, actually, they were, they were in the Roman Empire. I mean, there was Caesar over there in Rome. I mean, Herod was up north in Galilee, and he wielded power, tyrannical power, and even the governor, Pilate, on the coast at Caesarea. And, of course, there were soldiers all around him, and, and they knew there were ranks, and there were there were centurions who commanded a hundred soldiers under them. They understood all about that in the secular world. And they even saw it in their own religious world. They knew who the high priest was. And there was a class of priests. And, and they had the power in Jerusalem and in Palestine religiously. And they knew their place. And it wasn't, it wasn't at the top. And of course... That's the way their system worked. And and Jesus said, not so among you. Well, here we are among a lot of Gentiles as well, right? In our culture. I mean, when you think about it, there may be believers that are in positions of authority, but the whole system is built on a Gentile system where it's a power structure and people vie for that. Whenever anyone gets in a position of power, people want to be around that person so they too can wield that kind of, some kind of power that would flow from that person. And that's how a system works. And there needs to be people that are in roles of leadership, but unfortunately, in fact, sadly, the church down through the ages has often succumbed to the 
system of the world. And uh, priests and pastors have, have been put on a pedestal and have wielded authority and power all too often. Uh, leaders in the church have sometimes uh, used those positions in ways that have been very harmful and detrimental. Think about what would have happened if the church had done otherwise. And there are great examples of that, and it really stands out and, uh, because it's probably fairly rare. But it shouldn't be rare. Jesus said, no, 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 this is the way it is among you. So I pro you probably noticed that becoming a Christian does not erase the presence of selfishness in our lives. We still have that, and we still have a secular world in which we live. And so we've got to go against the grain if we're going to realize that in the church, there's only one class of people. They're servants. And if we have different roles, yes, that's good. But we exercise those roles, even as leaders, to serve those that uh, Christ loves and honors just as much as any leader. So it is in the family. And so it should be in a Christian family with uh, parents and children. Yes, there are roles, husbands and wives. Yes, there's roles. But when a person's given a leadership role, it's to serve and to sacrifice for the other. Uh, in our culture, I don't know, maybe uh, in, with, in a home with a husband and wife, the remote is a symbol of authority, right? It's like a scepter, okay? And uh, I've made a decision. I mean, Dee often lets me have the remote, you know? And uh, especially during football season. And she's really gracious about that. But I've made the decision. I'm going to hand over the remote uh, after February 5th. <laughs> it's a Super Bowl. <laughs> well, seriously, um, serving is what Jesus honors and what is what honors Jesus. And that's what he's called us to be, is servants. And you know something else? Servants should have good self-esteem. Now that may seem a little contradictory, but we'll talk about that in a subsequent message. But sometimes we think of a servant as one who just grovels and feels inferior and others push them around. That's not really being a servant. Jesus came as a servant, but he wasn't pushed around. You know why? He knew who he was. And he knew whose he was. And that's true of every Christian. When we know who we are in Christ and whose we are, then we're not responding to every demand around us. We're responding to him. And we're serving as he directs us to serve. And it's the needed hand if that's what he's asked us to do. And we do so humbly, but not as mindless robots. We're serving the Lord in our service. In fact, Jesus is the model. Look at verse, these verses. I'll repeat one of them. He said, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's amazing. Here's a God who created the universe and all that is in it, who came among us, taking on flesh, to serve and ultimately to die as an act of service for us. If that doesn't break our hearts and cause us to love him and want to serve him, nothing else will. It's greatest motivation to serve the Lord. There's an old fable 
and it's entitled The Last Wish of Orville Sash. Any of you ever hear of that? I hadn't either. You know, it's, a, it's maybe a fairly rare fable. But Orville Sash was a mail clerk in the largest corporation in the world. And he, he spent his days in the lowest reaches of an incredibly tall building, and he would sort mail all day, helping the people in that building above him to do the best at what they were doing. And uh, sometimes he wondered what went on in the floor above him, but he didn't dwell on it. But then one day there was a bug that was going across the floor of Orville's mailroom, and he was just about to step on it when the little bug said, Don't kill me. If you, if you spare my life, I'll give you three wishes. Wow, Orville <laughs> thought about that, and he thought, I don't know if this bug can give me three wishes, but I could probably make a, a lot of money off a talking bug, even if he can't. So he spared the bug's life, and uh, the bug said, So what's your first wish? And he said, to be promoted to the second floor. The bug said, no problem. And so the next day, Orville walked onto the second floor like a commanding general. And he was excited to be there until he heard footsteps up above him. And so he had taken the bug with him and he said, I have another wish. He said, what is it? He said, I want to be promoted to the third floor. In fact, I want to be promoted to every floor in this building until I am on top and I'm in charge and there's nobody that I'm not in charge of. I want to own this company. And the bug said, done. So it happened. It was a period of time, but I mean, over time, I mean, Orville finally found his way to the 20th, 50th, 90th floor. Then he was in the penthouse on that building. He had the corner office. He he was the CEO, he was the chairman of the board, and he was really grateful. But then he heard some steps on the roof above him. And he looked over in the corner and there was a sign that said stairway. So he opened that door and he took the stairs up onto the roof and he noticed a young man on the edge of the roof just kneeling with his eyes closed. And he said, what are you doing? He said, praying. Said, Orville said, to who? He, he pointed up and he said, to God. And that panicked Orville. He walked back down to his office and he thought, is there somebody around here that has more authority than I do? Is there somebody above me? So he summoned the bug. And he said, I have my final wish. He said, okay. He said, make me God. Put me higher than everybody. In fact, put me in a position the kind of position that God would hold if he were on the earth. So the next day, you know where I'm going here. <laughs> Orville awakened in the mail room, sorting mail, helping other people to do their best at what they did. And Orville learned that to be great, you've got to be the servant of all. You know, for our church... I think we're making an impact in this community by God's grace, but I think it can be multiplied if we will improve our serve, if we'll lean into what it means to be a servant in our homes, in this church, and in this community, where we live and where we work. In fact, I think it's so unusual to truly 
serve in that way, that we would find that uh, this church would be, and wherever we are scattered in this community, a haven of peace in a hostile culture. We'd be like shining lights in a darkened, selfish society. It'd be like an oasis in a desert, and uh, people would notice a sheltered cove in a stormy sea. That's what called, God's called us to be. It won't happen if we're vying for a crown, but if we're reaching for our cross, if we understand what greatness truly is and lean into that this year. And I've put in your bulletin a sentence at the bottom of that outline. I aspire to greatness this year, becoming a servant who... Jesus didn't say it's wrong to aspire to greatness, right? No, he didn't. He said it's wrong to seek greatness in the world's eyes. But if we take his definition of greatness, and that is to be a servant, then we should aspire to greatness. And I want to challenge you to pray over that and say, Lord, what, what would that mean in my life? What would it look like? Maybe it's in my marriage, my family, maybe uh, where I work or go to school in this church. And fill that in. Do a draft this week. You may alter it over the coming weeks, but uh, fill that in. As you feel the Lord is directing, you might have another person's name in there, a place, a quality, whatever it would be. It would be unique because God would be directing you in that. And let's, it could be a sentence, it could be a paragraph, but uh, respond to that. And then let's allow the Lord to lead us to greatness this year. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we're so amazed and yet grateful that you came among us to serve. Lead us, Lord, in this path of discipleship to be servants of yours as well. And Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who hasn't yet come to know the joy of forgiveness and salvation that you provided by the way in which you served through the cross. This would be the day, this would be the year of a relationship with you through repentance and receiving you into her life, into his life, and saying, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. I want to now live for you. Lord, lead us, we pray in your name. Amen.